Welcome in to TYT's The Conversation. I am your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I have joining us the Deputy Washington Bureau Chief for Insider. That's Dave Leventhal. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Hey, great to be with you. All right, now, Dave, there's been a lot going on, particularly in the media, as far as it concerns Afghanistan and really the Taliban's takeover. So, can you tell us kind of where things stand right now and essentially what we possibly should be most concerned about? Well, on one hand, we have the ending of a war that has lasted for 20 years. You may be watching the show and not remember the beginning of it. It's just gone on that long, which is why. Many people have referred to it as the endless war. In a way, it seemed that way not long ago. But at this inflection point on August 31st, we also have sort of the beginning of a very, very different scenario for the United States as troops leave. And we all ask, well, what happens next? Afghanistan is still there. There are still 39 million people who live in that country, despite many who have been evacuated out. There is a humanitarian crisis of significant proportions. And of course, COVID happening as well. Say nothing of the takeover of the Taliban, which 20 years ago were we having this conversation, they would have been in charge again before we kicked them out and had a war for 20 years. So it's an incredibly confounding and confusing situation at 10, 11 days out now from the 20th anniversary of September 11th, which in a massive way was the impetus for our involvement in Afghanistan in the first place. Wow, that definitely is a history lesson. And the thing is, is the question of what does the future look like? And I know with the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan, they said that it's greatly increased the risk of it becoming a terrorist safe haven. So I know that's what one expert had told Insider. What are What's your assessment on that? Well, going back 20 years ago, that's why we got ostensibly involved in Afghanistan in the first place because of Al Qaeda, because of terrorists who are being harbored in Afghanistan by the Taliban. And that's why the bombing campaigns began. That's why the military involvement by the US began. This was all under George W. Bush, which again seems like a very distant memory to many people. But nevertheless, that was what started this in motion and got us to this point. So it's a huge question right now for the Biden administration, which is, well, okay, two weeks from now, two months from now, two years from now, what happens if ISIS suddenly takes hold in parts of Afghanistan? What if there are terrorist cells that are coming up and ultimately could potentially not just do damage in Afghanistan, but to US allies, to Americans on US soil again? And this is all going to be put in incredibly sharp relief again in just a few days when we mark the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Yes, and many of us remember where we were when those attacks occurred. And I know that there is an evolving debate right now really over the level of the threat that could potentially be posed to the United States. What are you hearing? Well, the United States is going to be on incredibly high alert when you have anniversaries of this sort, when the entire nation is going to be marking as solemn an event as we almost possibly can get in the United States. That's an opportunity for those who would like to do harm to the United States to try to make their mark. So you can expect in cities all across the country that security is going to be Unbelievable, not only in New York City, but here in Washington DC and in all parts from east to west. 
And also too, we could definitely hear a lot of rumor and innuendos, things that are just simply not true. But through the pipeline, over the grapevine, over the internet, of course, there there's going to be a lot of chatter that I would expect that we're gonna hear. Much of it will just simply never come to pass, but it's gonna be a tense time, a tense time not only because of the anniversary, but also because of the events of, of the past many days as the United States leaves Afghanistan and ends its war mission in Afghanistan. Well, that's that's very troubling, largely because of really what's going on right now in the background with COVID-19. Also, a lot of the dissension in our nation with people essentially rising up, not necessarily trusting the government. And we're coming out of January 6th insurrection attack on the Capitol. It just seems like it's a very tumultuous environment in which now to interject the possibility of having the Taliban or others really essentially see us as vulnerable and potentially wage some kind of attack. So in terms of being prepared for that, do you feel from what you've seen so far and from what you know that the government is ready for this? Well, Joe Joe Biden gave a speech and in his speech as we left Afghanistan, as the final soldiers left, he made the case that this was absolutely the right decision that we should not have stayed in Afghanistan, that this war needed to end, it needed to come to some sort of military Finality and 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 be over. And we just talked about George W. Bush. It, it's it's hard sometimes to remember that this is a war that involved multiple multiple presidents. Started with George W. Bush, was inherited by Barack Obama. Donald Trump had it for four years, and only now with Joe Biden are we actually leaving in a military sense. But in a way that that is cold comfort as to what truly does happen next. Are we going to be safe here on US soil? Are the intelligence apparatus in the United States going to be effective enough where if there is a threat that they will be able to thwart it? And also to the question of is the US military still going to have a role in, in a bombing campaign or special ops, things that are not easily and readily uh, knowable uh, here just uh, in the United States, unless you're deeply involved in it. So expect that Joe Biden is going to face many questions going forward as to how exactly this is all going to work, what a relationship is going to be with the Taliban. We we have uh, some interesting countries that are really trying to also assert themselves. Qatar, for example, is going to play an outsized role for such a little country. In a way, it's serving as almost a intermediary of sorts between the United States and the Taliban diplomatically. But Russia, they are absolutely gonna be a huge player here. China, which borders Afghanistan and a little part in the Northeast corner, they're gonna try to assert themselves. Say nothing of other countries like Iran, which also borders Afghanistan as well. So we've got a number of different players who now that this situation, as you described, is so tumultuous and unsettled are going to also try to make sure that their names are being mentioned in the conversation as well. Yes, it definitely seems like there will be a push to some extent for almost a world power, even if it's at least by appearances. And of course, we are not looking very strong in the United States, given the decisive or the division, I should say. But also let's kind of switch and look things from a different lens of those who were forced to flee. You know, we saw during the Trump administration the push to avoid having any refugees, having any um, anyone immigrating from a different country that was brown. Uh, so let's be real about that. 
And so there's a lot of right wing fear mongering that's going on with the potential for Afghan refugees essentially building the base here. And we know that a lot of them have been evacuated from Afghanistan. So in terms of how that is really being handled, what are your thoughts? This is gonna be the biggest mass resettlement that we've experienced in many, many years for in part the reasons that you described and in large part because of the situation itself. So we've had thousands, tens of thousands of refugees come to the United States, say nothing of other US allies as well. Here just a few miles from Washington DC at Dulles Airport, planes filled with refugees coming in and people are incredibly scared. They don't know what's going to happen next. In many cases have left a country that they've known all their lives and are here in a brand new country halfway around the world. What happens next to them? So. It uh, might be a good time to, to read the inscription on the Statue of Liberty and uh, to think about how this is a nation of immigrants. And there are gonna be a lot of cities all around the country that are going to hopefully uh, welcome people who are in their, their their most dire time of need right now. And that too is going to be uh, just a, an incredibly fraught situation with COVID of course being uh, still very much uh, in the backdrop to all of this. Absolutely, we are so much going to need our government to step up and also we're gonna need individuals to embrace. As you said, remember the the inscription that is very much a big part of essentially what America was founded upon. And so if there is something that you are looking at that you think that isn't necessarily getting the level of coverage, what would you say that is? Local governments, we talk so much about the federal government, but what are state governments gonna do? What are city governments going to do when they might have 100, 200, 500 new residents who don't speak English, who have never been to the United States, who are gonna need a lot of social services. Are they gonna step up in a way that goes above and beyond what the federal government is doing? My beloved hometown of Buffalo, New York, there have been many refugees who've come there, for example, and by and large, the city has tried to, to embrace them in every way they could. So it'll be hopefully a challenge and an opportunity too for cities all across the country to do exactly that in what obviously is an incredibly dire situation. Thank you so much, Dave, for your contribution. Where can you tell people where they can find you, please? Absolutely, on Twitter at Dave Leventhal and certainly at businessinsider.com. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, thank you. It is Adrian Lawrence once again, and it is the conversation. Right now, President Joe Biden's been criticized for the impact withdrawing from Afghanistan is having on women. Now joining us to talk about her recent piece, The Phony Feminism of America's War Cheerleaders, is Natalie Schur, columnist at The New Republic. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Adrian. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. So we're ending a 20 year war that's really quite imperial as it is. Why is this a disaster for feminists? Well, I think that feminists want to claim that we were in Afghanistan for feminist reasons or that there is a feminist justification for war. And I just don't think that's the case. I think that we can simultaneously see what's going on in Afghanistan and be very dismayed by the reality there for women and girls and want to support them in terms of you know getting visas to be refugees, allow as many in as possible and really 
apply a lot of pressure for that kind of thing, uh, donate to organizations that are working on the ground. Uh, but I don't think that there's anything feminist about war or conflict itself. Yes, no, it definitely wouldn't seem to be the case, especially when there are a lot of ulterior motives swirling around. And I know you don't think it was good or it's good to necessarily leave Afghanistan at this point in time. But I guess, what are your thoughts on how the US should be proceeding? Well, I think that it's important that the US does leave Afghanistan. Uh, I think that we have been in there for 20 years. I don't think that we have improved the country. And I think it's folly to assume that we could have done that in the first place. Uh, I, I think that we should not have entered this war. Uh, and so in terms of you know how, how we should proceed, I think that an important part of the answer to that question is not presuming that we know best for the people there or that we can impose egalitarianism or feminism at gunpoint by staying. Um, and so I think that you know the most important thing to do now is to leave. Yes, it definitely seems that there is a lot of kind of this imperialistic colonial mindset um, going on. And as a result, people are suffering. And something the USA Today had said that you had noted, which was pretty poignant is, we can't make a country care about its own women. Only Afghanistan can do that. What are your thoughts? How did that resonate with you? I mean, I thought it was an incredibly condescending way to frame the problem. Uh, I, I don't think that the problem is that Afghanistan doesn't care about Afghan people. Uh, I think that you know the fact that we're leaving and that things aren't in a good position isn't because we care about Afghanistan's women more than Afghanistan cares about its women. I think that. If anything, that sort of thinking reflects that we might not have uh, internalized the lessons that we should be internalizing right now, which is that imperialism and 20 year occupations are not a good thing and cause a lot of problems and a lot of pain for the people affected by them. Yes, I would definitely agree with you on that. Now, also, it almost seems a little bit ironic, this whole notion that Afghanistan doesn't care necessarily about its women or mistreats its women, so to speak, when right here in the United States, you know, Roe v. Wade is potentially on the chopping block. We're seeing Texas pass legislation that essentially puts bounties out there for individuals who seek or get an abortion. And so I guess, is there any lesson that really can be learned here about maybe self-awareness for the United States? Well, I should certainly hope so. I think you're absolutely right that the United States is not a feminist utopia, that there are a lot of problems faced by women here in the United States. Uh, a lot of poverty is faced by women, poverty is very feminized, uh, a lot of oppression. And that's absolutely true for Afghanistan as well. And I think that Part of the problem here is that uh, you know any 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 form of oppression um, that is faced by anybody is likely to be disproportionately felt by women, uh, and that we can't have a trickle down version of liberation for these people. I think that goes for the United States. That feminism should absolutely focus on the people at the bottom. Uh, to build power from the ground up. Uh, I think that's true for Afghanistan as well. And I think that uh, the attitude that we can impose feminism uh, at gunpoint and that we are in fact 
expert arbiters of what feminism is and what an egalitarian society should look like. I, I think that we have a lot to improve on uh, as far as that goes um, in, our, in our own country. And that uh, women in Afghanistan are probably best situated to develop culturally competent uh, structures on their own. And that that might be incredibly difficult, uh, but I don't think that imposing war on another people is going to help at all. And would you definitely say that the United States is essentially using this purported idea of the advancement of women as an excuse for having been there for 20 years? Absolutely, I think that the feminist case for war in Afghanistan was very central to getting progressives and liberals on board with the war. I think that were it not for that angle, were it not trumped up to the extent that it was over the course of the past 20 years, I don't think that there would be as much liberal support or you know, there might at least be more pushback. I think that the ability of the war's architects to frame it as a progressive and righteous war from that point of view has been quite damaging overall. Yes, it definitely seems like there's this notion of kind of going over to save the people that saviorism is in play when it's clearly not necessarily objective at all. And in terms of moving forward, where do you think this can go? Well, I think that we need to look at our engagement with other countries and assess our imperialist program overall. We are pulling out of Afghanistan and I think that's a good thing, but it's certainly not over. Um, as we know, there are just there have just been drone strikes in the past week. Uh, we still have a military presence in dozens of countries throughout the world. We're involved in active combat in several. Uh, I think that we need to scale back on all of that. I think that we have to look broadly at the way that we have waged imperial war, especially since 9-11 over the past two decades, uh, how much money we've spent on it, how many people have died as a result, uh, the extent to which we dominate so many local societies, um, largely full of black and brown people too. Uh, I think it's very important to note that there's a very obvious racial component to the way that we have dominated so many countries in the world uh, violently. And I think that we need to really bring uh, an anti-imperialist message back to the center of the progressive movement more broadly. Yes, um, and how would you recommend that that be done while also bearing in mind the importance of feminist ideologies and ensuring that that is not lost from the progressive mindset? Oh, I certainly don't think that they are in conflict at all. I think that you know those should be part of the same program. The way that I see feminism is that I want to end oppression. I think that women are often more oppressed than men are for a variety of reasons. But that's not to say that there's not a very significant amount of variation among women that you know, the most privileged white women in the United States, the most economically powerful women in the United States, they certainly benefit from the same economic hegemony enjoyed by the United States that white men do. And that what we need to focus on is a ground up 
uh, fight against oppression, and that in some cases that is going to run up against the interests of uh, the richest white women in the United States. So I think anti-imperialism and dismantling uh, hegemonic structures at home and abroad are part of the same program. Absolutely, and it definitely seems to be something that uh, it'll it'll span uh, essentially borders and boundaries, uh, particularly given the wealth of individuals and wanting to maintain that there is a certain hierarchy, whether it's class, race, definitely gender, so on and so forth. And so, in terms of getting people on board, getting people not to necessarily support these imperialistic wars, uh, and to do what's best for women everywhere, what would you suggest? Well, I think that building power from below is going to happen largely through work and, you know, basically building power so that we can face people in power, hegemons, bosses, politicians, things of that nature. So I think that that requires organizing. And I think that organizing in solidarity with people around the world is going to necessitate listening to what they're looking for, joining their fight and being supportive, but definitely letting them lead the way as opposed to what we were doing in Afghanistan, which was basically trying to step out front and say that we've taken it from here. Excellent, thank you so much, Natalie, for joining us. And can you please tell the viewers where they can find more in terms of your work? Uh, absolutely, I'm on Twitter at Natalie Shirley, S-U-R-E-L-Y, uh, and I write a column at the New Republic every week. Thank you so much, Natalie, appreciate thank you being you so here. Much. Take care.